Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house. And Lord, we pray that if there's any heaviness, any type of unfortunate blanket over our souls that seems to be hindering our praise, hindering our focus, hindering our joy, we ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that it would be lifted off of us. Lord, anoint us with the oil of gladness. Lord, put a song in our mouths. Give us the realization of you being the living God that lives inside of us. And now we pray, Lord, that you would allow the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon this word and to unveil to us the possibilities of grace. Lord, we we need this word desperately. Lord, we have heard week after week the honor and the privilege and the blessing of justification by faith. Now bring us into the revelation of sanctification by faith. Bring us there, and Lord, let us live by it. We pray that you would take every heart that is lacking faith in their growth in Christ, and you would resurrect it. By your mercy and by your grace alone we trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, meet me in verse 16. And as you're turning there, I want to ask all of us a question. And here's the question. If you were to be asked by someone who's inquiring about your faith, perhaps it was a friend that you grew up with and you haven't seen in years, and during that period you came to know Christ, or maybe it's a family member that's noticing that you are giving your weekends and giving time during the week to live for God. Whoever it may be, just imagine yourself standing or sitting before someone and they are inquiring about your faith and they ask, I have a question for you. What has changed in your life since you became a follower of Christ? How would you answer that? How would you answer that? Now think, meditate. What would come to your mind about your heart being changed by union with Jesus? Would you say that you have a joy that can only be described as heavenly? Would you say that you've been given a peace that surpasses all understanding through circumstances where you know that if you were enduring before Christ, you would have been crushed? Would it be this hope that anchors your soul because you know that you have eternal life and it gives you daily hope? All of those those things are completely biblical and completely right. But let me challenge us on this point. In your answer to the curious inquirer, would this be on your list of things that have changed when you came to Jesus? A brand new set of desires. A brand new set of desires that did not exist before I came to know Jesus. Because it should be in our answer to a world that wants to know the change. And that is only a possibility because of the supernatural reality that when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we also receive the person of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And Paul describes it even more intimately and profoundly than that in a verse found in 1 Corinthians 6.17. I would encourage you to turn there and let it be something that you will meditate upon all the days of your life. In 1 Corinthians 6.17, look what Paul says. It's one simple verse. 
He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That dismisses any argument that our faith is nothing less than supernatural. It is totally supernatural. Now, what's the context of this verse? Paul goes on to rebuke and encourage the people of Corinth to stop engaging in sexual morality. And he's saying, you, you think that there's something called casual sex? You're, you're deadly wrong. Because when a man joins himself even to a prostitute, they become one flesh. There is something that is connected. There is a fusion that's taking place when that act is performed. And then he goes on to verse 17 to describe an even deeper union that is experienced, not between a man and a woman, but between God and man. And he says, listen, when a man and a woman come together, they become one flesh. That's profound. That's deep. That's significant. There's something shared there. There's a oneness that is created there. But let me take you even deeper. When a person comes into relationship with Christ, they're one spirit. When one is connected to the Lord, there is a oneness of spirit that is merged together. And what that means exactly is this, that the Holy Spirit intimately binds himself to us. That there is a nearness of the person of God to the deepest part of who we are, the spirit. And there is this sense of influence that comes about that, that is deeply obvious. There is something that is shared. There is something that is given. There is something that is deposited of our once dead spirit coming into contact with his divine spirit. And when this dead spirit of ours comes to life and it comes into union with the spirit of God, that union births something in us. The same way that when a man and a woman come together, there is a birthing that takes place. So it is that when the spirit of man and the spirit of God come into contact, something will come out of that. There is something created from that place. And what is created in that place is divinely driven, God-glorifying, Christ-focused, Scripture-prescribed desires. There's no argument around it. It is a part of the package of salvation. It is something that will be evident and obvious, not just to yourself, but to those around you. Desires. But what kind of desires? Plenty of desires. And here's one of them. Here's one desire that you can know is definitely going to prove itself if you've truly come into union with your spirit and his spirit. Something will be birthed. It's found in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 2. We've read this verse before. But we're going to get an idea of at least one desire that comes about in our lives. And it should be a sobering thing that if this is not a desire, we should put up some type of a flag. Look what Peter says. Remember, something is created, something is birthed. And something comes into the newborn Christian that wasn't there before. And look what Peter says. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've really tasted of salvation, if you've really tasted something of God concerning your soul being redeemed, what will come about that? Like a newborn baby, you're going to have a new cry. 
a cry that was not there before, a longing that was not there before, a yearning that was not there before. Now, one of the signs, one of the characteristics that a baby is healthy when it is born is that it has a cry. There's a cry. There's a cry for milk. There's a cry for his mother's provision of nourishment. If a baby is born and that baby does not have a cry after one day, after two days, after multiple days, it just lays there still and there's no evidence of hunger, there's a problem. Anybody knows that if a baby, a newborn baby, is not yearning and crying for his mother's milk, there is a serious issue with this baby's birth. And this longing and this yearning for milk, guess what? Why? Why does it happen? Because that baby has a need. That baby has a desire, and he wants or she wants that desire to be fulfilled. That baby doesn't need to be taught that it needs milk. Hear me very carefully. That baby doesn't need to be preached to that it needs milk. That baby doesn't need to be convinced that it needs milk. And you can't convince the baby not to crave for milk. It is a wiring that has taken place in that baby's nature that because it is a healthy baby, it's going to cry for milk. So it is with the newborn Christian. When that Christian is truly born again, there will be a cry cry for the pure spiritual milk which is the word of God now how ridiculous would it be to hear somebody looking at a baby and say hey baby if you're truly a baby you're gonna cry for milk and the baby goes oh you're right I gotta prove that I'm a baby so I'm gonna start crying for milk that's absurd and it's just as absurd for a person who professes faith to have zero desire for the word of God and his or hers only motivation to go to the word is that they hear that they as Christians should read the word so that's the only reason why they read the word. Let me put it this way. If you have zero cry in your heart, if you have literally no desire to come for the pure spiritual milk, there is something wrong. Yes, we need to be reminded. Yes, there are days that are tough, and we're going to get into that in a moment. But if there is no evidence for cry for the word of God, it's just like a baby who is born that has no cry for milk. There's something that is not right. And so this is just one desire. This is just something, this is just one element of many other elements that are born, that are birthed, that is created in the person that comes into union with the spirit of of God amongst many amongst many like prayer like you want to commune with God you want to speak to God you realize that God is your father like like a pursuit of holiness now you love the things that God loves you hate the thing that God hates and you're growing in your love for those things and you're growing in your hatred for those other things a desire to do what to share your faith to to testify to people what has happened you may not know how, you may not have the extent of knowledge, but all of us in here can testify, especially when we were born again, that there's this bubbling up inside of you that says, I want to tell people what happened to me. These desires are created. These cravings are now in motion, whereas before you came to Christ, did not exist. 
But here's another very crucial, important truth when understanding these new desires. It is, listen, it is foundational to understand this in our relationship with God. That just because you and I experience this new blossoming of pursuits for things that are otherworldly, that does not mean that those desires eliminate the old ones. These new desires that have come in does not mean that the ones that were there before are completely eliminated. And that's what Paul is about to say now in Galatians 5.16. Let's read it together. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And this is where we get this argument. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's the wonderful reality that we have to understand. When a person is born again, yes, a new set of desires come in, but it does not push out the ones that were there before. In fact, the mark of the Christian's life is that there is an inner war that is happening daily. There is an inner struggle. There is a head-to-head fight between a set of desires from the spirit and a set of desires that come from the sin nature of man. And this will continually happen. Let us not make the mistake of judging ourselves or judging others. If we experience or another expresses desires that are sinful in nature and deeming them unsaved because of that. That is wrong because we will only come to a place where we have these desires given by the Spirit completely when we have glorified bodies. That's the only time in which we can confidently say, I have no other desire other than the things of God and the will of God. But until then, there will will be a battle between the flesh and the Spirit, capital S, within us. And the battle between the flesh and the Spirit is for one thing, to try to possess, control, influence your will and mine. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And this is a perfect place to make a very crucial comment. If you are experiencing the struggle that I just described between wanting to do right but also feeling this desire to do wrong, Yeah, you have these desires like a newborn baby to pray and to to cry for the spiritual milk of the word of God and to, to be a witness and to be holy. But you also find something within yourself that is pulling you into the other direction. That is not the mark that you are a person that is unsaved. That is, in fact, the evidence that you are saved. Talk to anybody and ask yourself this question. That when you were not saved... What was your struggle with sin like? Let me give you a hint. There wasn't a struggle. Oh, sure, maybe your conscience would be bothered here and there. But that was because of your reputation. That was because of the harm that you brought from those stupid decisions. Not because you grieved God's heart. Not because you had a testimony as a follower of Jesus Christ. So if there was even a prayer that you cried in those unsaved days because you grew up in a Christian home and you knew that you just go to Jesus for emergency situations, you weren't really crying out to God because you broke his heart. You're crying out to God to get out of a situation. All unselfish motives, uh, selfish motives, all self-driven ambition, even in our sin and our supposed piety. 
And if you're honest with yourself, you enjoyed your sin. You had no problem with it. You longed for it. You planned for it. You meditated upon it. You bowed to it every time it knocked on your door and said, let me in. But when you got saved, somebody moved in. His spirit and your spirit became one. And now there's this struggle. Now there's this new pursuit and there's this war for you not to fulfill those pursuits. Here is the goal of your flesh. Your flesh and mine, here's the goal daily. To paralyze you and to keep you from doing the things that the Holy Spirit has birthed in you as desires. That's what he says at the end of verse 17. Look. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's what the flesh wants. Distract you, destroy you, derail you daily. And so be comforted by this truth. Perhaps you've said this, perhaps you've had somebody say this to you. In their struggle against sin, in these desires that are flaring sometimes more intensely on some days more than others, and you fall into sin, because it's possible even with a person who has received the Spirit to fall and to give in to these desires. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you said this. Man, this struggle is so intense. Brother, sister, this is so intense. I don't even know if I'm saved. If anybody ever says that to you, ask them this question. Do you love your sin? No, I hate my sin. I hate the way it makes me feel. I know what it does to my testimony. I know what it does to the heart of God. I just keep falling into it. Do you want to live holy? Man, I'm trying. I'm I'm wanting it so badly, but I can't seem to get victory. I can't get there. I I go into this cycle. I don't think I'm really saved. Let me tell you something. You are saved. Because an unsaved person would not say those things. They don't have a struggle. They submit to their sin. Gladly. Which brings us to another important point. Because that's not where Paul stops. Paul doesn't say, we have desires of the flesh. We have desires of the spirit. So good luck and we'll just see you in heaven when all those desires are lifted off. That would be a sad Christian experience, wouldn't it? Paul does identify the reality that you and I experience a struggle with sin. But Paul also promotes an answer to subdue sin. To subdue sin. Not to be completely delivered from the presence of sin, but to have our foot on the neck of the influence of the desires of the flesh. And this is what he's coming to at this point in Scripture. He's now going to give you and I the answer to be able to subdue sin in our lives. Would we like to know? I hope so. And this is a message of hope. This is a message of great joy. Because it tells us something. That we can identify the struggle of sin, but we can also identify the answer to soar above that struggle. It's about to get very, very real because this portion of scripture completely eradicates any excuse to be bound by any type of sin. He says what? He says here in verse 16, what's the answer? But I say, walk by the Spirit. If you have a different translation, it says walk in the Spirit. Three 
Four simple words. Walk by the Spirit, and here's the result, and you will not, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Amazing. Amen. Praise God. Sounds so simple. But what does that actually mean? We can memorize it. We can quote it. We can preach it. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Let's close our Bibles and go home. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Because this is the answer. This doesn't say years of therapy. It doesn't say countless meetings in, in, with, with somebody who's a psychologist. It doesn't say anything of the sort. Those things are fine. Those things are appropriate. But if it does not come down to a supernatural intervention by a supernatural being, there will be no victory. Walk by the Spirit. Now, it's simple, but it requires practical understanding. And let's not overcomplicate this and make this too spiritual, so to speak, where we have to jump through hoops to get into this place. Really, let's boil it down to two main points of what it means to walk by the Spirit. If you and I can grab a hold of these two points and understand them in a faithful way, we will know something of victory. We will know something of endurance. We will know something of perseverance over the power of our transgressions. To walk by the Spirit, number one, simply means this. To be dependent upon his power. For me to walk by the Spirit means that I must be dependent upon his power. That is found in verse 18. Look at verse 18 of Galatians 5. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, another way of saying, if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, guess what will happen? You are not under the law. Now, this is what Paul doesn't mean. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it confused. He's not saying that because we have the Holy Spirit now by the covenant of grace, that you and I are not subject to any commands, that you and I don't have to obey anything that God has prescribed in his word, that we can just live how we want, and I can make up my rules how I want based on a few principles in the Bible, and I'll just live that way. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. That's not what Paul's saying at all. In fact, what Paul is saying is exactly what he's been arguing for up to this point in the book of Galatians. What, was, what were the Galatians trying to do? They were trying to come under the law. They were being tempted to come under the law. And what that means exactly is that they were trying to what? They were trying to adopt the laws of Moses and the feast and the ordinances and all these different things. To try to attain their righteousness before God by their own human efforts. That's very important. They were trying to do it by their own strength. They were trying to do it by their own might. They were trying to do it by their own wisdom. They were trying to attain a holiness by their own ability. And so what he's saying is, if you're, by, if you're living or being led by the Spirit, you're not living... You're not moving. You're not walking with God by your own strength, by coming under the law. That's not going to happen if you're led by the Spirit. You're not going to be driven by human effort. Your attempt for justification, your attempt to sanctification, by your own strength and power, what it means to be under the law. And guess what? If you're led by the Spirit, you're not going to be motivated by that. You're not going to draw from your flesh. You're not going to draw from your own mind. You're not going to draw from your own ability. To walk by the Spirit means that you do not walk by the strength of your own flesh. You're not under the law. That's what he's trying to say. So this tells me something. To walk by the Spirit is to first acknowledge my total inability 
to have victory over sin unless I'm led by the Spirit. To, let me say that again. To walk by the Spirit that I may not gratify the desires of the flesh means, number one, that I must first acknowledge my total inability to have victory over those desires unless I'm led by the Spirit. When you look at the face of the law, do you look back at yourself and see hope without any cry for the Holy Spirit's assistance over your thoughts, over your words, and over your deeds? Do you and I ever come to a place in which we believe, truly believe, that apart from abiding in the vine who is Christ, I can do nothing like Jesus said? Are we totally convinced that we are ruined, that we will be failures apart from the Holy Spirit infusing us with his power? If you're not at that place, you will not know what it means to be walking by the Spirit. If you have first not come to that place that the Holy Spirit is my only source of provision for what I lack. Power, power, power. Then you and I will not know that power. There needs to be an acknowledgement, a deep awareness that I will eat sin for breakfast, lunch, and dinner unless the Holy Spirit changes my appetite daily. We say, okay, well, I get it. The Holy Spirit has power. I sing it. I hear it. I quote it. How do I experience it? How do I draw from this power? How do I receive the sap of life from this vine? Great question. I believe the answer is found in James chapter 2. That's where we need to go. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 6. We need grace in our walk with God. And that's what exactly James wants to give us through the Holy Spirit. The answers to more grace. James chapter 4, verse 6. Look what it says. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Point blank. Here's one way we are proud when we fail to realize that apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot do this. We are arrogant. We are self-deceived. If we trust in our own wisdom, if we trust in me not doing this and me doing this without any inspiration of the Holy Spirit in those decisions, we are deemed as proud. And because of that, we eliminate any possibility for the Spirit of God to give us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of dependency. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that realize that they're bankrupt. Those that realize that they are weak. Those that realize that they are helpless daily. Even in those strides of victory, you still know that the reason why I have victory is because God's lifting me. It's a continual acknowledgement of dependency upon God. If not, we are proud. And when we're proud, we cut off the source of grace that God only gives to the humble. Now we say, okay, I want to be humble. Okay, I want to come into that place, that attitude. What does it mean to be humble? What does it look like to be humble? How does humility display itself in the vessel of God? The next part. 
Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. He's following that after the cry that he only gives grace to the humble. And he goes, okay, you're humble. You want to be humble? You want to come into that place, that position where you get from God grace? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Okay, this is important. Humility is not just me recognizing my need. Humility is lived out before God in this way. You submit yourself to God. Meaning what? That every area of your life is surrendered to his lordship. That every aspect of your existence is branded with, belongs to Jesus. That you're not stubborn in your submission to God. So you hear different messages and you fail to completely give your heart completely to Jesus, you're not humble. If you're not humble, you're not going to get grace. If you don't have grace, you're not going to be able to have victory over sin. So me being humble looks like me submitting everything to him. All my plans, all my desires, everything about who I am is for the Lord. If that's not coded over your heart, forget grace. Because we're not humble. Not just submit yourselves to God. That has to be clear. So if you're struggling against sin, let me ask you this question. Is every area of your life surrendered to him? Because we cannot experience this grace if we are not going to first give in to his lordship. It's not going to happen. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's what humility looks like. That will give me this grace. But not just that. What does it say here in the next part? Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Humility looks like that. So yes, my heart is submitted to God, but also there's a drawing near to God as an expression, as an extension of my humble state. And even in temptation, this should be lived out. That the moment I begin to feel the pull, the, the tide of temptation taking me in deeper and away from the presence of God and the will of God. I need to draw near to God. And that will look more intense on some days more than others, depending on the intensity of that temptation. And you and I know exactly what that looks like. That there are some days it feels like everywhere you go, all it is is that temptation. Clouding your mind. Bombarding your thoughts. Trying to win your affections. A person that will receive grace will submit himself to God. He'll live in that state of submission to God, but he will also say, oh, God, I need you. God, I can't do this. I'm drawing near to you because apart from you, I'm going to give in to this. Apart from you, I will bow down easily. Apart from this, I will make room for the sin in my life. It is this drawing near to God continually. I've heard many things in school, and you've heard this from me before, but I'll say it again. One of the greatest things I learned was one simple phrase that I learned from my first class, my first semester in school, and it was this, turn your temptation into conversation with God. Turn your temptation into conversation with God. God sees it already. And walking in the light looks like that, that you are hiding nothing before God, even the struggles that you have while you lay in bed at night. And you say, Lord, you see it. And I need your power to overcome it. If you do not help me, Lord, I'm done. Do you think God will reject such a cry? Would God turn his face away from a person who has placed himself in that kind of a state of heart? Lord, I need you. I cry out to you. You say, well, I've done that before. Nothing's worked. Well, you go back to the scripture where it says, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
endure it. Meaning what? That you will cry out to God, but it doesn't mean immediate deliverance from all those sensations. Whoa, there it is. Oh, this is so easier than I thought. No, he gives you the grace that even when you feel it, you can plant your feet in who he is and be able to overcome it. There's an endurance that comes with this grace, not immediate deliverance. Again, glorified bodies means that we're delivered completely. So I, I cry out to God. I draw near to God. But guess what? These temptations are still there. But this is the promise. You can endure it. You keep drawing near to Him. And if you feel like even you're drowning, grab a hold of the lifeguard of your soul. And there might be that struggle in which, yes, the waves are still pulling at you and the undercurrent is still yanking at your ankles. But hold on to His hand. And at one moment, he will pull you out. And one day you'll wake up and know that there's joy in the morning. That tears, yes, endured for the night, but there's joy coming in the morning. That's his promise to you and me. So that's what humility looks like. I submit myself to God. If you're not submitted to God, then you will not know humility. You will not know grace. If you draw near to God, that's evidence as well that you are in a person who is dependent upon his power. So to walk by the Spirit is to be dependent upon His power. Acknowledgement of my lack of it and the acknowledgement that He has the provision for it. Number two, to walk by the Spirit, and here's a crucial one, is a daily decision. This is just as important as the first one. In fact, it connects to the first one. You can understand the first one, and if you don't apply the second point, then the first one will be futile. To walk by the Spirit means that I have a daily decision to walk by the Spirit. The very command to walk by the Spirit, that word walk is a present continuous tense. So we can safely translate that command to keep walking by the Spirit. Listen guys, please hear me out on this. People miss this. If you think that walking by the Spirit is a one-time deal, we've missed it. It is not a one-time deal. It is a daily choice that I must make to keep walking by the Spirit. It's possible to walk by the Spirit for days on end, for weeks, for months, for even years, and all for a sudden to stop walking by, in, with the Spirit, and then to be overcome by the desires of the flesh that seem to be in control for such a long time. You know why a person who's been walking in victory all for a sudden comes to a state of defeat? I promise you it's because they stop walking by the Spirit. You go, prove it to me. Well, look at Galatians 5. And look at verse 7. What did he say to the Galatians? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So at one point, the Galatians were not just walking by the Spirit. They were excelling in that command. They were running by the Spirit. They were taking over. They were growing at an accelerating rate. And all for a sudden, they stopped. They stopped realizing that he was their only source of power. They start believing that they could do it by their own strength, by circumcision, by obedience to the law, by mixing salvation with works, by mixing sanctification and my efforts. And they were in danger of being swallowed up by the desires of the flesh. I guarantee it will be the same for you and me. It's possible to have run well with the Spirit and all for a sudden to stop running. 
And the point of running well, running with, walking with, whatever you want to identify it as, is that you and I would daily step over the power and influence of sin. You were running well. And if we connect it to the first point, it shows this. That I must not just acknowledge that he is the source of my power. I must, and I'm not exaggerating here, I must daily draw from that power. And when I mean daily, I actually mean daily. I actually mean daily. Look what Paul, rather some would argue Paul, but unknown author in Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day. Do you think he meant every day or like skip a few days here and there? The New Testament authors had an understanding of the power of the flesh, I believe, more than all of us. We have to understand that this flesh is way more powerful than we actually think. But exhort one another every day, brothers and sisters, why? As long as it's called today that none of you, oh, so all of us can experience this, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It only takes one day to backslide. Like you can hear Friday night Bible study, Saturday fail to draw from the power of the Holy Spirit and allow sin to harden your heart, coming into church Sunday with that kind of heart. So again, you might be thinking, brother, you're exaggerating. Well, then you failed the number one where you fail to realize your inability. You and I fail to realize the power of our flesh and our daily need for his assistance. Do you see? We have to be convinced that apart from him, every minute of the day, there is no possibility. But there is a possibility to remain in the stream of the Spirit. And it comes from this, daily walking with him. I promise you that temptation is the strongest when devotion is the weakest. Temptation is the strongest when devotion is the weakest. People often wonder, how can I know years? I want to know years. I want to know a lifelong victorious Christian experience. I'm done with the cycles. And in fact, I'm worried that as life gets busier that I'm going to totally walk out. What's the secret to months and stretches of days and weeks and even years of the spirit-filled life. Here's the answer. Ready? Take it one day at a time. One day at a time. See, the problem with that mentality is that you're already looking ahead and you're trying to wonder, how am I at this point supposed to fulfill these things Years ahead, there's no way I can see myself growing. There's no way I can see myself overcoming all these things that I know are going to come when I go to that school, when I go to that workplace, when I have a relationship with somebody. I just, I'm overwhelmed even by the thought of it because you're not taking it day by day. Take it day by day. Just make the daily choice. Don't think of one week from now. Don't think of one month from now. Don't think about the father that you'll be. Don't think of the husband that you'll be. Forget it. Take it day by day. And as you do so, 
you will create a routine and a habitual practice of the presence of God to such a point that when you miss a day, it will feel abnormal. <laughs> yeah, something's off here. Because you have so connected yourself to God that when you have even a slight disconnection from God, you feel lifelessness creeping in. I'm telling you it can happen. You're saying, I don't know what that's like. Perhaps because you have not made it a daily practice, so it's common. Here's a very pale comparison, but it's a comparison to, to just help. It's the same thing with those who daily exercise. You've made it such a habit of your life to exercise and even certain body parts of the week that when you come to a place because you've done it for months and even years on end that you miss a day, you feel it. Two, three days, you really feel it. I'm out of the loop. And here's some aches and here's some cracks and here's laziness because you've, you've allowed yourself to come to such a molding that when you stepped out of that routine, that habit, you're aware of it. And when you're aware of it, you know that you have to get back into it until it has its full effect. It's the same thing with daily devotion, walking with the Spirit. You've so familiarized yourself with Him. You've so come to His Word daily. It's almost just second nature because of how you've come to this point. And when you don't, you feel lifelessness keep, creep in and you're in the middle of work. You're in the middle of school. You're in the middle of your community. You go, I need to draw from the well of life as soon as I can. Everybody's fellowshipping and hanging out and you know that you didn't have that time. And you go, i got to use the bathroom. I'll see you guys in a few minutes. Lord, I need you. I feel death creeping in. Come. Fertilize my heart. Come. Make it moist again. Daily walk. A daily decision. The command itself implies a present, continuous obedience to it. And we come now to a point where to remind ourselves to walk by the Spirit means to be dependent upon His power and number two, to daily decide to walk with Him to draw from His power. Only then will we see consistency and to soar over our struggles and to subdue those sins. And you might be thinking, really? Every desire? Really, every sin can be overcome. And Paul does us the favor by giving us a list. Paul now wants to identify these different things, these different iniquities, these transgressions that identify the desires of the flesh. So you come to verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is what we have to understand about the, the flesh. It is the root of all problems. The source of the evil in the world is this. And to deal with the flesh by fleshly means will not guarantee a lick of victory. There needs to be a spiritual force that will come in and deal with this flesh. Again, let me say, any counsel, any therapy, any advice, any one-on-one, -on -one, anything apart from the power of the Holy Spirit 
will not ensure victory. There's categories here. There's categories here, and as these categories are declared, perhaps there is a desire of your flesh that fits into one of these categories. And if they do, know that every single one of them is conquerable by walking with the Spirit. The first three that are listed here deal with the sexual realm. Sexual immorality. Fornication. Intimacy. Between a man and a woman or a man and a man, woman, whatever it may be, before marriage. Any act that is performed outside of the sanctity and the God-ordained boundaries found in a covenant between a married couple, man and a woman. Or even adultery. That even if you're in that union and you're, you're tempted, one of those desires to pull you out of the wife of your youth. And to come into contact or into exchange with somebody who is not your spouse. Sexual morality. Impurity. Dirty thoughts. Dirty words. Dirty meditations. Sensuality. You go to the original, it speaks of explicit and almost animal-like lust in which a person has come to such a place where even if their sins are exposed to the public, they don't care. And it puts everyone in shock except for that individual. Pretty intense. So the first three deal with sexual temptation, sexual urges and impulses. The next two deal with the religious realm, false religion, idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry, me bowing down to anything that is a created thing and not to the creator. Anything that pulls my affections and my obedience and my will above my God. I can make an idol out of anything, not just some statue that I have to give things to and dance around. No, 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 no. We know this about idolatry. The temptation to love anything more than God. Sorcery, the experimentation and the attempt to tap into the spiritual realm of evil spirits for whatever motivation. And sorcery here in the original actually speaks of the use of drugs. The use of drugs, which they did back then, in which they try to create some kind of a formula or even some hysteria or some ecstasy to come to some experience. To mingle with demonic things. Some people are tempted with this stuff. And the next eight here deal with social sins. How we interact with one another. And they're self-explanatory. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I'm so encouraged by this category. You know why? Because they start here. They're hidden. People can't necessarily see them right away. And we think that to walk by the Spirit, to have influence of the Spirit is for those big sins, those gross sins. No. If you have anger in your heart, burst of anger, your solution is to walk by the Spirit. Jealousy, envy. You compare yourself with others. You wish you had what other people had. You take pleasure when somebody misses out or loses what you so desire from them. Those ugly, nasty emotions, there is a freedom available. And the last two deal with substance abuse and the results of it. Drunkenness and orgies. 
me being able not to control my intake of alcohol to the point where it leads me to behavior that is dishonorable and disgraceful. Alcoholism is not a disease, it's a sin. And the solution to even substance abuse, yes, there are different means and there are different programs. I'm not preaching against it. I'm just saying this. The power of God is needed. The power of God is needed. And just in case, Paul in wisdom and by the Spirit, just in case none of these apply to you and those things are seemingly ineffective in your heart, there's a last category, and it's this, fill in the blank. Because he says, and things like these. What Paul is doing here is, yes, he's identifying what sin looks like in detail. But what he's also saying is, hey, whatever you struggle with, emotionally, mentally, substance, private sin, public sin, sexual sin, pornography, fornication, name it. Name the struggle. Name the desires that want you to gratify them. Name it. You can have victory over it. You can have victory over it. And it's only possible by walking by the Spirit. And here's the main point for us. These Galatians wanted to attempt by their own strength to present themselves holy. Wanted to present themselves as righteous, pure. And Paul says, you want to know the source of that? Not by doing something to your body. Not by severe dealings with your flesh. Not by planning with human wisdom. Not by separating yourself from society. Get in contact with the Spirit daily. Humble yourself. Submit yourselves to God daily. Draw near to God daily. And you will know something of a grace that will give you victory over any sin. Might be hard to believe, but it's true. And it's possible. And again, it first begins by believing it. If you can't believe it, then you won't experience it. But I wonder this. I, I really want to ask this. Are you tired of your sin? Are you sick and tired of it? Or are you kind of, come on, be honest. You kind of like it. kind of comfortable with it you've kind of convinced yourself that you can live with it or for it to live with you I can also guarantee you this with all the truths that have been declared until you are utterly disgusted with that sin it will be your companion for the rest of your days 
until you come to the point where you say, I want to know a spiritual victory. I might have not known it up to this point, but I want to know what it's like to walk by the Spirit and to be free from this bondage. It will be shown by your submission to God and how you draw near to Him. And in due time, it will come. Listen, they who wait upon the Lord shall not be put to shame. You know what that means? As you wait on God for something, and you yourself think this is getting ridiculous, and others around you are thinking this is getting ridiculous, know this. If you wait on him, you won't be put to shame. You will know salvation. You will know a stream of the Spirit seeping through your veins. And you will know a joy that is only found in holiness, but has been given as a gift for you to draw from. I've come to realize that all these things can be preached. Listen very carefully. All these things can be preached but a person is not desperate enough to be delivered. If you knew you had cancer in your body, how would you deal with that news? Would you be casual about that? Would you be kind of concerned about that? Or would you do something immediately? Because you know the longer you allow that cancer to live inside of you, the more death will creep into your life. So it is with sin. It's deadlier than cancer. And you might not experience the pains of it immediately, just like cancer. You might not know its influences and its spreading, just like cancer. But there will be a time where it will come and you will know its effects. I think our problem is our failure to realize how ugly, how destructive, how deadly sin really is. If you and I really knew it, we would do something about it. And I can tell you, those that I know that have saw victory over a particular iniquity have come out of it when they saw and knew how deadly it was. And they ran to the great physician of the soul and they were willing to lay there as long as they needed to lay there until that surgery was performed and that thing was taken out. Don't wait until it begins to affect you that you cry out for deliverance. Don't wait until you see its paralyzing effects, until you begin to submit yourselves to God. Do it before. Do it before. And he waits. He waits with those tools he waits with his gentle touch. He waits with that coal of fire if needed to come and brand and pluck and do whatever he needs to do to ensure that we would walk with him. This is a message of hope, if there ever was one. That it's possible, not to eliminate it, but to subdue it. Not to kick it out of our hearts completely, but to make sure it's in its rightful place and that the throne of your will is occupied by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. 
here's some language to know how to deal with this issue before the Lord. God, I know that you've given me new desires. Like a newborn baby, I cry for the word. Some days that cry isn't as real because of these other struggles, but Lord, I know that I have a desire for your will. I have a desire for a knowledge of you that I did not have before. I know that about myself. But God, right now, I want porn more than your word and you. And I want another woman more than my wife. Lord, I want what that person has, and I'm not content with what you've given me. Lord, uh, my flesh really wants the sensation of getting high again. I don't know where it came from, but it's there. I know it's not right. I know what it's going to lead to, but Lord, I can't help, but I feel it. Lord, if you don't help me, if you don't intervene, if you don't change me, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it to thy throne, thy courts above. There needs to be that honesty. There needs to be that confession. There needs to be that clarity with God. Oh, it's so freeing even when you speak to him that way. You're saying, well, today was a good day, but what's tomorrow going to bring? Stop thinking about tomorrow. For today, you have enough worries on its own. One day at a time with Jesus, with your struggles. One day at a time. These desires are real. These fleshly impulses are real. Let me tell you something. I knew a person that was addicted to cocaine before they got saved, was in prostitution. Even after they got saved, one day they were taking a, a shower, they were getting ready, and this, this person told me that in the middle of getting ready for bed, she sensed the sensation of snorting cocaine come out of nowhere. She sensed the sensation, she could feel even the texture of the substance going through her nose. And she got on her face before God, weeping, saying, Lord, I don't want this. This war is real. This flesh is real. And just like any enemy, sometimes it'll take you by surprise. Sometimes it will come full force. Sometimes it seems like it's camouflaged. Sometimes it's a little easier and you have some greater victory. But we can't afford a day without it. You cannot afford a day without this. Because sin is there waiting for you. And this is the great protection. I think Keith Daniel said that enough for us to know for a lifetime. But we have to believe that. Let's bring our struggles before the Lord. 